going to tell you just a, just a little bit of my story of a white guy, majority culture guy that was raised in the, in the South um, in a home with my grandmother who was pretty prejudiced. My great-grandmother was pretty prejudiced. They were raised in, in the home with me. So I was exposed to that like early on, but, but I would say I never really was a racist person per se. Some of my best friends in middle school, high school were black guys and black girls. So I just never felt myself to be racist. And it was um, four years ago that we began to pray, a group of pastors and leaders, beginning to pray for each other and to pray for the community. And, and from that place of prayer over many months that God would begin to reveal to all of us specifically what we were asking him for. We were believing for revival. We were believing for that. We were, we were praying for that. But then God expanded that in front of us and began to let us know, hey, it's not just revival we need, but we need reconciliation. And we, and we found out then as we prayed that the answer to racism is reconciliation. Reconciliation with God and with each other. And the answer for dead religion is we need revival. And as, and as, as we pray into that, God did something beautiful. He breathed on it and, and, and just spoke the vision of one race. You know, and it was beautiful. Now, I say all that. There's, there's, a, there's a big story. I don't want to tell that story, but that's kind of what brought us. But that brought me to a moment in time. And I remember thinking, um, I remember thinking in those early meetings, Josh, man, I, revival, dead religion, that's good. And, I, man, I will give mental assent to the whole you know, reconciliation racism thing, because that's not me. I really just, that's not me. I'll, I'm, you know, I'm team one race, but that's not me. And, you know, God really took me on a journey of trying to get there, you know, get there to understand, because I simply didn't understand what the whole thing was about. You know, hey, we're all free. We're all good. Let's high five, move on. Everything's good in the, everything's good in the world. Yeah. And I began to, but I, so I, I didn't have it. So I suspect there's a lot of us out there right now, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're a white guy, a white gal in an American culture, and you sat exactly where I sat three, four years ago and trying to figure out what this is about. So I want us to take a little time tonight. for, for and, and I'm going to become that guy, right? I'm going to become that guy four years ago as much as I can. I'm not that guy anymore, praise God. But I'm going to like, I'm going to like, Come that guy, because what helped me the most was all my friends that were African-American, my friends that were black pastors, we never talked about it. And it began to change for me when I began to sit across from them and say, help me, help me to understand. Help me to understand what you're going through. So I want you to help me, help me as a white person in America to understand what this is all about what happened? Help me bridge the gap from in my mind and then to my heart. That's a big undertaking in just like 45 minutes. But <laughs> help me, Josh. Help me, Hazen. Help, help us that maybe you sit in the seat I sit in right now. Yeah, you know, they say that there are 18 inches between the mind and the heart. But it can be the longest journey, right, to get things that we know mentally to sink down into our hearts that we believe them and begin to live them out as values, you know? Um, it, it certainly is a complex thing that you're, that you're referencing here because we know these things, but, but certainly at a heart level, sometimes we don't, we don't believe them, we don't practice them. It's just mental knowledge. And I just think that uh, what you just said was really profound. 
And then secondly, I want to say too, that we rarely get to sit and talk about this with you, but you were the seed for all of this, you know, and I just want to say thank you. I think, uh, I think that sometimes gets lost on me that, that, that the Lord gave Dustin this idea a while ago, and it's just, it's blossomed into something, something radically different. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah, man. I love it. I love it. Well, I think the right place to start with all of this, you know, we can talk about the present tension and then Hazen, feel free to chime in. Um, I, I think the right place to start with all of this is possibly going to this transformation model that we talk about within one race, right? Um, as, as, as a person of color, I'm going to try as best as I can to share with you, uh, whomever's listening right there in your home, um, to share with you how to journey in this space, how you can move forward from where you are to, to, to deeper knowledge of the, the chasm that exists concerning racism, concerning prejudice and white supremacy and all of those things. And I think, Dustin, the way that you said it with education and revelation, I think those are key in all of this. You know, sometimes we want to lean very heavily on spiritual things and not so much on natural practical things. Yeah. And that, that, will keep us, that will keep us in the same place. Yeah. Sometimes we want to rely on natural things and not spiritual things. And that will keep us in the same place because it's both. It's both spiritual yeah. All that we see manifest in the natural with the riots, with the protests, with the killing of black men, with the whatever it is, it, it emanates from the spirit. Yeah. And then also we have to inform our behavior. We have to inform our minds. We have to inform our hearts so that we begin to practice our faith differently. And so I think revelation and education are key. So education, just, just a quick insert there, because education for me, middle school, high school, when we studied these issues, slavery in America, it was, a, it was like maybe a page and a half in a 300-page history book. Yeah. The definition of lynching was maybe a couple of sentences. Yeah. And it was literally just, that was it. I mean, just Emancipation Proclamation, bam, 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 Jim Crow, bam, 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 and, just, and just zipped right on through American history. Yeah. So I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I, you don't know what you don't know. So, I mean, profound ignorance, you know, on just what I was taught in my American education system. I didn't, I just didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and until we have a common history, there is no way we can move forward, yeah. you know? And so being educated, coming to a common history so that we, we begin to understand that, that slavery wasn't some walk in the park, that, that Jim Crow wasn't some pleasant period where blacks really were separate, but equal. Um, that since that period, it, it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been a peaceful journey. I think a good place for us to start with this conversation, as I said, is with this no own change the story model. Mm -hmm. You know, I am often asked, how do we move forward? How do we journey on this thing? And I like to tell people, we've got to know the story. We've got to own the story and we have to change the story. And I think that know the story piece is so critical to everything that we talk about, to everything that we do. Um, because as you said, you know, history isn't taught the same everywhere. It is a short blip on our radar concerning race and uh, how we tell the African-American story within the American context. I think it's, 
it's underserved in our school systems, and hopefully at some point we will begin to Change serve that. it better um, so that we can have that common story. Even if it is a story of pain, even if it is a story of, of great evil, even if it is a story of great tumult, it, it actually testifies to how far we have come as a people and also helps us to understand why we are where we are in the present. Yeah. Um, it's such a, it's such a, a crucial point. I think you, you talk about there. Um, so know the story. I think you have to know two stories here. I think you have to know the story of, of the American experiment. And I think you have to know the story of, of the church, right? Many think about racism and we never think about the church in relation to it. But the church has had a heavy hand in propagating and expanding and growing racism through, through its theology, through, through its practices. Um, and I think you have to talk about both of those things. Uh, with the American experiment, and Hazen, feel free to chime in here. I feel like I'm talking a lot here. Oh, it's all right. It's great. Um, within the American experiment, I think with, with just knowing, you know, I break it down into chunks so that people can get it. But in 1619, Africans were brought here and forced into enslavement. And that lasted for 250 years, right? Um, and those weren't peaceful years. We didn't treat Africans as, as if they were our best friends during that time period. No, they were treated awfully, uh, mutilated, raped. I mean, it was, it was not a great experience. You know, think about making a trek from, from West Africa to America and a ship, often, you know, ankle deep in feces and urine. It's not a great experience. And once you arrive here, you know, they, they worked long hours and weren't fed well, and it was a dark period. Um, we have to know that story. We have to know that story because that story informs our present. Mm -hmm. I say it all the time in the cohort that I lead of pastors and leaders from across the city that, that the past is very present with us and we can't move beyond uh, the past. We can't move, move forward in the present until we address the past mm -hmm. because it's present with us in this moment. And so you move forward 250 years to 1865 with the Emancipation Proclamation. At this point, Africans, African Americans are free. They are free to, free to what? Free to go and become sharecroppers, free to languish, free to go into Jim Crow and separate but equal. Uh, such a tumultuous time period there, and that would last for another 100 years. So explain to a person who doesn't know what, so in many Emancipation Proclamation, you're free, all is good. Move on, get over it, let's yeah. just work. It's all good. It wasn't that simple. It wasn't that simple. <laughs> and, you know, we like to paint Abraham Lincoln as if he were the hero of that story. He wanted to win a war. Um, and that's, that's a story that we don't tell too often. But, but to your point, it wasn't a peaceful period. You know, you think you're free. Free to do what? Yeah. I, I, I'm not educated. I can't read. What am I free to do? Yeah. You know, it's, I think Dr. King said it's, uh, it's heartless to tell a, a bootless man to pull himself up by his bootstraps. Yeah, so powerful. You know, and, uh, and that would be certainly true of that scenario. It's heartless to say you're free, you know, and this man doesn't have a boot or to, to pull up. Um, 
but, but that was the experience, you know? And then you go into separate but equals, this idea that African-Americans were inferior and whites wanted to be separate. So explain what are Jim Crow laws. I, th I think we throw that word around. What were the Jim Crow laws? The Jim Crow laws. Uh, so African-Americans, let's say you arrive at a restaurant. Uh, there would be an entrance for colored people and then an entrance for whites. Separate entrance. Uh, let's think about education. Uh, there would be schools for African-Americans, and there would be schools for whites. Mm -hmm. um, whites could vote. Blacks couldn't vote. And if they could, so excuse me, let me give the exception, they would have to pass a particular test so that they could vote. And often there was intimidation and a lot of things that went into that, prohibiting them from being able to participate. And so it, it was a dark, dark period. And, I think and it wasn't we, that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. Let's think about it. We're, we're, we're not talking about a thousand years ago. We're talking about 50, my mom and dad. 55 years ago. My mom and year. dad. Yeah, my mom and dad generations. Yeah. That was going on. It's real. My mom and dad were on the bus when black, everybody had to sit on the back of the bus. Yeah. That was their world. That's yeah. The same, and he's still alive. It's still that generation. So in this very generation, those things were happening to African Americans. I don't think we always get that. It's not, I mean, the generation we're in right now, I think this is the generation of my dad. He's still alive. Yeah. So in this generation, it was, this was going on. Yeah, absolutely. Proximity, the, the proximity of this. Absolutely. Well, you're, you're talking 55 years ago, so let me break it down for you. Mm -hmm. So you think about 250 years of slavery, 100 years of separate but equal in Jim Crow, of a 400-year narrative when we just talked about 86, the precise numbers, 86.5% of our history, black people being here in this country, was marked in racism. So say, say it again real slow. Everybody needs to really grapple, grapple with that. Yeah. So 86.5% of our history here in America as black people was under legislated racism. Yeah, that's, that just needs to like, that needs to just settle into all of our hearts. Yeah. I didn't get that. I didn't understand that. That for me was something when I heard that for the first time, it was one of those, oh. Yeah. It's an, it's an aha moment. Absolutely. It's, and it makes, it begins to make sense why we have the tension that we have in the present, right? Because it wasn't that long ago. It was only 55 years ago. So let's think about this. For 13% of our history, we have pursued uh, equity. It's been possible, not realized, but certainly possible uh, during that time period. And what do we have? We have uh, periods where uh, where these things called law and order, which was basically harsher policing for communities of color uh, in, the, in the 80s. Uh, the war on drugs, which really was the war on black people. You think about the, the riots of the 90s, and then we move into the 2000s, and you've got the public school to prison pipeline. Uh, when we think about prison, there are 2.4 million people that are incarcerated presently. 2.4 million people that are incarcerated presently. Yeah. 60% of those people are black people. Right. Now, 60%. This is something that's often, I think, misunderstood. Now, yeah, I mean, they're in prison because they did things wrong. They should be punished. They should go to jail. I mean, that's, a, of course, they, got, they broke the law. They're in jail. Yeah. That's a very limited way of looking at it there's, because there's more to the story than just that level of um, simplicity and elementary thinking. Absolutely. So how is it, and break this down real quick, because this is, this is when we went to the lynching museum in Montgomery, 
Alabama. That was a, I mean, a light bulb completely went on in that moment. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and beginning to like understand that, that, that after African Americans were free, how they were imprisoned, you know, and then sold back out, you know, from the prisons to back to the plantations. Can you just speak to that just a little bit? That, I mean, I, I saw a picture in downtown Lawrenceville, Georgia. I think it was as early in the early 1900s of a lynching that was taking place. And I, I want you to really speak to this. And I looked at the picture there, and there was a, a black person being lynched, hanging up. And, and the people would come in from, from, from out of town. It was the big entertainment event of the evening. There was the lynching of an African-American. And there was, a, there was a mom and a dad and their kids. And they were eating popcorn yeah. under, the, under the feet of this, of this black man that was just lynched. I mean, I, I saw that. That wasn't in my history book. Yeah. It, it's an interesting thing. It, it's a really, really interesting thing. They have over 4,200 documented uh, public lynchings that we, that we know of that are Just in recorded history, 4,200 of them. Um, the Equal Justice Initiative uh, is a great website. It's a great resource. I mean, there's reading there for days. Um, I can tell you a story about it. There's a, I won't tell you that story because it's really, really dark. Um, I won't go there. Not tonight. But, but, but lynching was a, it was a common practice. It was a really common practice. And you're right, it was a spectacle. It was something that many would come out to see, uh, often because of an accusation uh, by more, I forget the percentage, but there's a high percentage of lynchings that took place for African-American men that were directly tied to white women making accusations of them. Yeah. It's a high percentage, you know, of, of what we know of lynchings at this point. Um, we just have had some dark times in this country. Yeah. And I think those dark times inform the present tension. So when we start talking about George Floyd and we start talking about Ahmaud Arbery and yeah. we talk about Breonna Taylor uh, and Philando Castile and Eric Garner and Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Sandra Bland and so many others. Yeah. It's, it's tied to a longer story. Yeah. There's a bigger narrative here. And I think it, it's hard for people to see it, to really understand it. That's why I like to paint the picture within percentages because 86% of our history as a nation was, is under legislative racism. Yeah. And only over the last 13, the last 13 and a half percent have we been able to pursue equality and equity in the present. And that hasn't been realized otherwise we wouldn't have weeks like we've had this week where we all witnessed a man lose his life senselessly, needlessly. And I think the past informs this, this occasion. Yeah. I hope that the connection is happening for you, that racism um, isn't just individual. It isn't just, I don't like black people. Though that is racism, I call it individual racism. It's a real thing. But there are systems that are at play that harm communities of color. Yeah. And they have been at play in this country for centuries. Yeah. And all of that snowballs. And we don't quite get uh, why the outcry is so, is so much or why there are protests and why there are riots. 
but this is, a, this is an all too common thing. Yeah. And I think we find ourselves at an inflection point where we have to declare enough is enough. Yeah. So, and Hayes, you need to weigh in here. You, you, you have such a depth of knowledge on all this stuff too. What, what do you, what's sitting on your Well, I just think a lot mind? of times we want to ignore that 87% that Josh was talking about and we don't realize that if you create momentum, that momentum carries over into what has not been weighted as significantly. And, uh, and just to paint a visual picture of what Josh is talking about, imagine we had a bowl of 100 marbles that represented, that represented the history of our nation. And you put 87 of them on one side of the scale that represents all the years that African Americans have suffered from injustice. You would only have 13 marbles that you could set on the other side of the scale. That's a picture of what is experienced in the, the African-American collective understanding of their history. And so when we say things like, well, we've had a black president, shouldn't we just go ahead and get over it? Yeah. People are discounting those 87 marbles that are weighing heavily on one side yeah. of the scale. And the thing we have to remember is you don't get to just pull those marbles off the scale. The only way to balance those things out, um, yes, we need to have and practice forgiveness. Yes, we as Christians can put the transgression and the sins, both individual sins and collective sins, under the blood of Jesus. But the Bible also teaches that you know we, uh, we not only repent, but we stop doing evil. We have mm -hmm. to individually begin to pursue the path of righteousness. And what that means is you begin to put acts of righteousness and acts of restitution back on the other side of the scale. Mm -hmm. You know, we love to talk about the stories of the women that wept at Jesus's feet. And Jesus looked at her and said, daughter, you who have sinned much, um, you've uh, loved much. And so your sins are forgiven because uh, of the greatness of your faith. But when you think about the story of Zacchaeus, in Zacchaeus's case, the expression of his forgiveness and the expression of his repentance was that he chose to make restitution against those that he had wronged. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus spoke to him and said, truly the kingdom of heaven has come to this place. And so I think something that all of us have to consider and I have to consider as a, as a white man in these conversations is my world has not been impacted as much as Josh's world by those 87, yeah. <laughs> by those 87, uh, you know, the 87% of history that carries momentum into the present. And so it's easy for us to be dismissive of that experience, you know, because of the experience of the community I grew up in, because of my collective experience and the education that we receive. Like you said, you know, Dustin, we get a very different perception from our, from our vantage. And so one of the things that we get to think about as white people in this journey is not only how do we educate ourselves, how do we empathize, how do we care, but also how do we begin to balance the scales, if you will, and begin to elevate people who have historically been oppressed mm -hmm. and, uh, and not considered and had to experience bias and not like historically, like hundreds of years ago, historically like right up to the present, to the mm -hmm. present day in many respects. Not to drill down just, just a little bit, because it's a, just to remind everybody, this is a multifaceted issue. It's very it's multifaceted, complex. different aspects of it. 
you know, yes. there's all different things. But to, just to just to keep our focus tonight is to is to help <laughs> the white guy kind of make the journey over into into some level of of education and revelation into this. Yeah. So just just an example, if George Floyd had been a white guy, all right, I would have seen that on the TV, and I would have said, man, that wasn't right, that wasn't fair, that that cop needs to be punished. I, I probably would have, maybe sadly, it probably would not have hit me very hard. You know, just, it just wouldn't. I mean, it's, it's awful, it's terrible. You know, what's on the next page of the newspaper kind of yeah. thing? This is true. But because it's a black person, right, the, it, it hits the entire African-American community different than if it was a white person and how it hit the white culture, Anglo culture. That is, I want you to really speak to that because I think that's a, that's something that really opened my eyes in this whole conversation. That how come this person that just got killed awfully, I agree. Why is it, why does it seem to sweep through at such a high level, but it doesn't if it was a white person, it didn't sweep you like that? Can yeah. I contribute one? Yeah, thing yeah, do that. because that, that, That's a, the cool. collective point. I think part of the outrage is, I think, rightly a sensation that had it been a white man that was under uh, the officer's knee, then the officer would have faced those consequences with greater immediacy, and it wouldn't have been four days later before he was charged and many protests yeah. later. And I think, I think that is uh, what, what people presume, and I think that's probably also true, yeah. honestly, that there was a slower response to the injustice um, because the benefit of the doubt is in many cases not given to the African American person in that situation. Yeah, I mean the I think the the precursor to the story is that the clerk in the store was suspicious that he had fraudulent funds, that he had counterfeit money, mm -hmm. and uh, and called the police on him. And we still have not gotten confirmation as to whether or not that's true. But what we do know is that we saw him pulled from his car, and we watched him suffocate on the pavement. Yeah, And I think that it's, there was no crime committed because they refused to accept the money. So essentially they executed a sentence right there on the pavement yeah. uh, of a man who, who hadn't committed a crime. Yeah, And so it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing. But to your point about the individual versus the collective, in the American experience, rugged individualism is celebrated. We are celebrated um, and even within white culture specifically, individualism is, is kind of, it's, it's the way of life. Yeah. Um, it's not a, it's not a, a thing to be considered. Uh, and especially when you think about uh, achieving the American dream and a country, uh, that's about personal success and achievement and triumphing, um, individualism wins the day, but within the African American community, there's this collective, there's this communal piece, and I think it has to do with the suffering that we have yeah. had as a people, that we all feel that viscerally when it happens. Right. Uh, I remember where I was at when I heard the verdict that, uh, that uh, when I heard that uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted in the Trayvon Martin case. Right. I remember where I was at when I found out that the officers wouldn't be charged with the Michael Brown case. Right. I can tell you exactly where I was at when I saw the George Floyd video for the very first time. Yeah. And I wept. I felt it in my soul. Um, and I don't think, I just don't think we white, 
white folks understand what you're talking about. White American experience, rugged individualism, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, you know, whatever you want to do, you can do it in America. Kind of that, that, that singular person, yeah. but through suffering created a collective sort of communal um, heart, you know, that when one gets hit, the whole heart experiences it much like the Jewish people, you know, from millennia have been persecuted, 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 and they have a similar type yeah. feel when, when one of them are hurt, the whole community, because it, it was, it was right. born out of suffering. And, and that's where the experience comes from. And that's the identifier as a white person. I can't, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel that because I'm, yeah. it didn't happen to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a different experience. Yeah. It's a difference of experience. Um, but I think that we could learn something from, from that expression from the African-American community. And I think it informs how we move forward as a people and how we support one another. Yeah. I think as we see these stories begin to unfold and, you know, uh, there was this thing called Blackout Tuesday yesterday, right? Where yeah. we all saw the black squares or the black posts uh, on everyone's status. It was kind of a communal lament. Um, I think that we could learn a lot from that expression. Um, scripturally, when, when there was sin in Israel, you know, they would lament before the Lord as they were, just before they would repent as a sign of repentance, they would lament before the Lord as a sign that they're turning their hearts back to him. Yeah. I think that we have to recapture the art of lament in the, in the American church. I think we have to begin to lament the sin of racism in our culture. Yeah. I think it's right for us all to cry out. I think it's right for corporations to speak up. I think it's right for, uh, for people to, to protest broken systems. I think it's right that we lament. Yeah. I think there should be an outcry. Yeah. Uh, because it certainly breaks the father's heart, and so it should definitely break ours. So that's a that's a that's a great segue. Because now, just to turn it toward the role of the church, the, the where do we find the Bible, the biblical? I mean, well, how can the church engage? We've, we've kind of diagnosed the problem, but what's the what's the responsibility? Is it inherent in the gospel? Is this a gospel centric issue, or is this just like racism? abortion, we just, it's just a, it's, it's a societal ill and be it as it may, what are we going to do? I mean, how, how is this an issue that the church should have front and center? Why, why is this just not in the laundry list of problems in society? Why does this seem to be more important or, or should be on top of the list? Help me figure that out. Cause as a, you know, white guy, yeah, I know racism is an issue, but you know, so is abortion and so is gay marriage and so is transgender. I mean, it's just so many, like, why is that? Yeah. Why? You know, when we, so, and I'm going to let you chime in here as well, but I'm going to go to the key verse for it. You know, in Ephesians chapter two, uh, verses one through 10, we have a theology of reconciliation to the father. It's by grace through faith that we've been saved, right? Yeah. We find Paul saying that. It's one of our key verses for salvation. And then you move into verse 11 and you move throughout the rest of the chapter and he's talking about something different, right? Yeah. Seemingly. In fact, while you're there, I actually had this written down. And let me just get us into the word here. Ephesians 2.14, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility 
by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Now, we know in this passage he's talking about Jew and Gentile, but the principle applies across the board. Yeah, absolutely. So the first part of the chapter, he's talking about vertical reconciliation. And the second part of the chapter, we find out the implications of the gospel, right? Yeah. Which is horizontal reconciliation. Uh, There he talks about this hostility between Jew and Gentile. Well, back at the temple, it was illegal for the Gentiles to come into the inner court. In fact, if they were seen peeking through even a crack in the bricks there, they were persecuted, even killed for doing so. It was a wall of hostility. Mm-hmm. And I think about racism. I think about the American experience, the, uh, the racist past that we have as a group of people here. And I think about the hostility, the wall of hostility that exists between people groups, right? Uh, but Jesus, through, through his blood poured out on the cross, through the, through the work that he achieved there, has made a way for the two parties to become one. In fact, he says something really unique here. He says that he's bringing about a new humanity out of all of this. He wants us to be together. He wants there to be a new uh, reality that comes because of what he's done on the cross, that he can take two groups that had so much hostility between them, so much hatred between them, uh, and make something new and beautiful and unusual out of it. Uh, And that should give us hope. That should give us hope for the present moment. That should give us hope that even though we have 400 years of pain, even though we've talked about lynchings and we've talked about the complicity of the church and we've talked about the different systemic issues we have, it should give us hope because if, if, if the Jews and the Gentiles can come together, if he makes provision for that, he certainly has made provision for you, Dustin, and me to stand together and to realize that new humanity here in the present. So this, what you're saying is this, we're not going to fix this through human means. No. We're not going to, we're not going to this, this issue is not going to be, be resolved out of a, you know, Senate, maybe subcommittee. Yeah. You know, this whole reconciliation, it's not going to be fixed there. So we're, so what is, what's the solution? I think it's multifaceted. I'll let Hazen weigh in here first, and then I'll come back. Well, I think we know that transformation has to happen in the human heart. Right. And we're not going to stop saying that, even though people might say that um, it's an insufficient answer. Because I know that the reason my heart breaks for my brothers and sisters is because God has delivered me of selfishness through the cross. Right. Like my testimony is I was just a very selfish, self-centered person. And that sin only would have abounded and I think increased in my life if not for the deliverance that Jesus gave when I repented of my sins and gave my life to him. And so now I'm able to live selflessly by the grace of God towards others. And actually my heart breaks out of that intimacy with the Lord for what breaks his heart. And as Josh said, these things break the Father's, break the Father's heart. And so there does have to be personal transformation because you believe what we just described from Ephesians 2 because we believe that the cross has reconciled us because of what Philippians 2 says. It demands that that Jesus example demands of us that we esteem others more important than ourselves. And you, you can't hold white supremacy in your heart if you're trying to be a disciple of Jesus. You can't hold self-centeredness or self-exaltation So because heart. of rugged individualism, and I read Ephesians chapter 2, and I only latch on to that first part of it, 
You know, hey, I'm reconciled back to God. I'm a rugged individual. Me and Jesus, we got a good thing going. But we don't finish the chapter. That's right. We don't finish the chapter, right? It's not me and Jesus. We're all reconciled. We're good. Let's go do our thing. That it's incumbent upon this reconciliation must lead. Mm-hmm. To the horizontal reconciliation, it's it's inherent. It's 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 not optional. It's it's part of it's part of it. I think right. it's interesting that you know when we teach about the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Pharisee came and tested Jesus, and that's the answer that he gave. And then he said, the second commandment is like it: love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And the parable that Jesus gives, and the Pharisee asked to justify himself, "Well, tell me who my neighbor is." And Jesus uses a story, the story that we're all familiar with, which is the story of the Good Samaritan which is an implicitly racially charged situation yes. in order to exemplify how we're to obey the first and second commandment. Yeah. And so when we think of the example that Jesus said, when he said, okay, this is what it means to embody love of your neighbor, he actually chose a, a example that speaks exactly to the kinds of circumstances we see in our nation right now. We have to love across racial lines and not in a not in a uh, a soft way, but in there's a word that I, that spiritual formation people use for the the kind of love a cruciform love, yeah. and cruciform love means a love that is conformed to the love we see expressed in the cross, not a Hollywood love, not a high five kind of love, a kind of love where you take the burdens of another upon yourself yeah. and you die to yourself. Yeah. Um, and you said, what's the solution? And it's an embracing of that at such an individual level that then when I see systemic inequalities, I make those things my problem. Right. Um. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the uh, I think the theology of individual ruggedism goes against goes against scripture for the believer, yeah. for sure. Um, we are part of a larger organism. We are members of the body of Christ. And I love what Corinthians says, that when one part suffers, the entire body should suffer along with it. Yeah. You know, Lecrae said something yesterday at our press conference that I thought was just profound. He said, we do a lot of talking about neighboring and othering, and I think it's good. I think it's good. Uh, but he said, there's something different about the body. My mm-hmm. body is always closer than my neighbor. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And I was like... You know, Lecrae, yeah. you just you just informed me just a little bit here, helped yeah, helped a brother out. It's brilliant. And so, um, yeah, and I think we have to begin to see ourselves as a body. And so, back to your point, it's 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 a transformation of the heart. Yeah. Yes, the heart has to be transformed. Um, and that's I, why one race is, yeah. is 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 a it is a prayer movement long before it's any other thing because it's it's about this happens at the cross. Absolutely. It absolutely happens at the cross, and then we have to live it out. You know, we have to, uh, we intercede because it is a principality. We pray because it is spiritual. This mm-hmm. is not a fight against flesh and blood. I don't have, my issue isn't with, with the white guy across the room. It's a principality. It emanates from the spirit. Right. But then we also have to come out of the spirit and begin to live a life informed by the values of the kingdom. Yeah. Um, calling for a kingdom ethic. In, yeah. the public squ- in the public square, calling for systemic injustice to, to end. That if there is a group that's oppressed, if there's a group that's being racially targeted or with the, with the events of our week and the last few, the last few weeks, um, watching African-American men, African-American women lose their lives senselessly, 
Um, We have to come after that systemic evil too because the gospel compels us to do that. Okay, so now now we'll be a little bit argumentative with you here, all right? Let me just say this. So hold on a minute, Josh. I mean, we're just called to preach the gospel. I'm just going to preach the gospel. I'm not going to step into this, all this stuff. You know, that seems to be, that just gets in the way of the gospel. I mean, why, why do I need to like do getting into all this mess? Let me just preach Jesus, love people. I'm going to, you know, avoid this whole justice issue. Yeah. I mean, how can you, why, do, why should I engage in this at all? Why should I engage in the public arena? Why? I mean, should I just preach the gospel and have my I Love Jesus t-shirt on and have my fish in the car and hand out Bibles and tracts? And really, that's, isn't that, that all I'm supposed to do? Why do I need to go into this yeah. den of vipers? You know, I mean, why? why, why? Because, we, because as believers, we are charged to, to live out the kingdom values, to live out the practices and uh, words of Jesus. We're called to live out uh, the scriptures in community. We are not people that, that get to believe something and go to heaven and not practice anything. Um, I have a good friend who often talks about uh, orthodoxy versus orthopraxy, right? Mm-hmm. It's right believing orthodoxy. It's right doctrine, right yeah. theology. We believe the gospel is good. Uh, Jesus, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so, right? Um, but 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 if our if our orthodoxy doesn't move out into orthopraxy, us practicing our our theology, it, it's meaningless. If we don't actually go and love a neighbor as we love ourselves, which is the second greatest commandment, yeah. then it's it's an empty love. If we don't go and do First Corinthians thirteen, uh, if we don't go and do First Corinthians twelve concerning the body, if we don't go and do those things. We have an empty theology. Yeah. We have a very broken theology. You know, one of the things that I, that I hear from people is that, I mean, I'm just not a justice person. I'm not into the whole justice thing. That's, you know, I'm into peace and love. And, and justice, that's, that's not really something that we should be involved in. You know, we know Jesus is going to come back one day and he's going to fix everything. So I'm just going to like, you know, shove all this, you know, shove all this till the return of Jesus. And could I respond to that? Yeah, yeah. I think in some ways that's indicative of oftentimes the white privilege that a lot of people are living in. Because you can say very easily, I'm not into justice when no one around you is being oppressed. That's treated unjustly. And so, you know, and just even (laughs) That's a great thought, yeah. I mean, it's because then it's just theoretical. Right. Right. But once you're in relationship with people that have had a, a different experience in their life, and that's why my relationship with Josh and my relationship with a lot of the African-American people that I've walked with in my life has been so precious to my discipleship journey in terms of culture is because only when you live in proximity of people who've had a different experience do you get to realize both the, the benefits and the challenges of your own experience by contrast, right? And do you also get to realize Okay, there's some suffering and pain that's in my life, and then there's suffering and pain that's in that's in their life, and some of that's unique to us as individuals, but some of that is expressed yes. through the cultural lens, and that's just real, you know. Yeah. And so it's an overstatement. It would be an overstatement to say all of our pain of our individual journey is based on our race, right? But it it is a way oversimplification to say that that a lot of the racial injustice and things that people, or a lot of the injustice that people experience is individualistic and not based on racial systems. That's right. Right. And so there is, uh, and when we begin to see that, even just contrasting, and this is something that I, I would encourage my 
white friends to enter into a dialogue with because it was illuminating for me, even just contrasting your experience as a white person with the police to the experience of a few other African-American people and what has your, what mm -hmm. has your experience been like? Because mm -hmm. when we have conversations about what was our experience with the police like, it illuminated some distinctions. I have, I have done, uh, in my before Christian days, done many illegal things. <laughs> Last week? And, and there are times when I was caught by the police doing these yeah. illegal things. Um, driving without a driver's license before I was of age, uh, you know, just uh, with friends that we had snuck out of the house, you know, and um, and we were politely escorted home by the police, you know, and not to say that there aren't people of color that have positive experience with the police. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is all my experiences have been positive with the police, and that's shaped my perception of the police in general in a positive light. And then I compare that to some of my brothers and sisters of color and their experience with the police. And though they've had some positive experiences, they've had far more negative experiences yeah. in my general conversations that I've had. And I just have to realize, wow, I've never had a negative experience with a police officer, but many of my people, uh, yeah. people of color that are in my life, they have. So it's easy for me and you as a white person to dismiss the justice that issue is off a bit example. because I've never experienced injustice. But now we can get a taste of this because we actually are even hypocritical in that a little bit because if your child or my child is at school and somehow they don't get picked for something that they should have got picked for, and they experienced an injustice, every one of us as a parent is going to be right at that school. They're going to call that principal. They're going to call the teacher because, hey, why did you skip over my son? He made the grades. He went to the tryouts. Why didn't he get picked for the team? I don't understand. So we actually have the capacity to respond to an injustice. And we may do it more oftentimes than we think, but not we don't cross the board in this situation. You know, it's interesting. Listen to this passage, and, and we can kind of start landing the plane. It's, it's Luke 11.42. Jesus' harshest words, denunciation to the Pharisees. It's, it's in the most strong language you ever hear from the person of Jesus Christ. He's, he, was, he, was, he was tough. You know, listen to these words. Woe to you, Pharisees. Because all these woes in Luke 11. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. So the indictment of Jesus to the religious community, which if we lived back in that time, you know, the Pharisees were probably the, you know, the white Republican majority. And that, that was who the Pharisees were. They were the, they were the conservatives of the day of the Jewish community. They were the conservative guys. I mean, these were the, these were the good guys in many respects for their era. They were standing against the Sadducees. They were standing against the radical zealots. They were standing against the Essenes. They were the ones trying to hold fast the rules. But yet Jesus says, you neglect justice and the love of God. Justice. It, to me, it, it kind of comes back to that education revelation piece, you know, justice and the love of God. Would you just speak? Maybe we can kind of land the plane there, but justice, I, I'm struggling with that. You neglect, or, or could it be that we as the church are doing this very thing? We're neglecting justice and perhaps even the love of God. I, I think it's certainly possible. <laughs> I, think it, I think it could be just a little bit possible. No, no, no. It, it is very, very, it is actually practiced over and over again. Um, and it's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing 
because throughout Scripture we find both justice and righteousness, right? These Pharisees would have thought that they were the righteous people during Mm -hmm. this time period. And we find righteousness and justice replete throughout Scripture. Uh, It's a common theme. In fact, we know that the throne of God is founded on justice Justice. and righteousness. And then we move forward to the cross. And what happens at the cross? God gets justice over sin, right? And what do we get? We're declared righteous at the cross. Um, It's it's really unfortunate that, um, that we neglect justice in the way that we do. Uh, we are we are definitely about about righteousness. We're about the semblance of living right, but some kind of a way when it comes to wrong th- making wrong things right, which is how I define justice, uh, we we tend to neglect it. We yeah. tend to leave it out, um, and I think it comes back to that individual that individualistic spirit, yeah. that uh, meritocracy that I can achieve my way into things. Yeah. It's it's wrapped in our, our American experience. Can I, uh, I want to comment on what I think are four of the greatest injustices in the world and why I think race is the one we need to focus on the most. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned these earlier, you asked the question, and we kind of asked a second question, and I just want to come back to the first yeah, yeah. one you asked, which was, you said people will say, you know, the issue of abortion, homosexuality, you know, gospel to the nations, why is, why is racism one that we should address more than these other ones, sex trafficking. Yeah. And if you look at what I think the key injustice issues are that the church would decry, right? Um, The uh, killing of the unborn, the, uh, you know, the the, uh, assault on marriage and the way that things within uh, transgenderism, homosexuality, and the whole way that that is uh, deconstructing the realities of marriage and giving kind of a false expression of, of what a healthy family and a healthy union can look like. And then, and then the issue of, of there are so many in the world who've never had the op- even had the opportunity to hear. Um, of all of those, the one that people will challenge the most, the legitimacy of, is the, the issue of race. Mm-hmm. Yet I think that's the hinge to actually unlocking all three of those issues. And the way that we have to understand it is the issue of abortion disproportionately affects communities of, of, of color. And it's very difficult to go to those communities and say, we care about your babies in the womb if we're not actually caring for the poverty and the difficulty and the oppression that they're experiencing outside of the womb. Mm-hmm. Similar, similarly, it's very difficult for us to address with boldness the issues of, of sexual immorality because we're viewed as bigoted because we've stood wrongly on the issue of race historically in the church and we've never addressed that. Hmm. So we lack courage in the issue of speaking to homosexuality and we don't know how to speak the truth there in love because we haven't dealt with the issues of race and racism in our own heart. We aren't able to speak appropriately to issues of life because we haven't loved people beyond the womb. And then when we go, we want to go love the people in the nations, but we haven't loved our neighbors in the urban centers of our cities. And so if we will begin to deal with America's original sin, I believe that it can unlock these other justice issues that most of the evangelical community would say they're deeply committed to changing. But when we come to the issue of race, they want to say, well, can't we just get over it? 
And if, mm -hmm. we, if we want to resolve these other issues in our society, we need to go to the root, which I believe one of the roots of these things that are a fruit of a root injustice is the issue of racial discrimination and disparity in our nation historically. So good. So we're back to where we started. And I like to watch people get in swimming pools. It's interesting. There's, there's different ways to get in a swimming pool. Have you ever noticed that? You have the person that goes up to the pool, and you, and you got the guy that, that, that like starts off on the, on the ladder. You know, he just like tits his, he gets his toes in, and he's like, he kind of gets in his ankles. He kind of acclimates, gets up to his calves and his knees, and he just, and it, just it takes him forever. He may, get, he, he may get out a few times, but then he, fight, he might work his way in slowly. And then there's the guy. He doesn't even stick his toe in the water. He just goes straight to the high dive and into the, into the deep end of the pool, and he just goes right in. I think this is one of the moments in church history that we don't have the luxury of putting our toe in the water, trying to acclimate, just easing into it. I think this is a moment we need to go to the deep end of the pool and we need to dive in. It's, it's that moment in human history. So I say that to say this. You probably wonder, where is he going with the pool story? It's that, can, as we kind of wrap up, can you give us you each may take one, give us one or, one or two things. How can somebody like me get, what can I do? What can I hear this, what we're talking about? What can I do right now to jump in the deep end of the pool? And what's something what's some I can just like, I can do right now. I want to go right in the deep end of the pool. So I, wanna, I don't want to wait. I want to like get this education and revelation as expeditiously as humanly possible without just kind of gradually easing into it over the next 10 years. All right. So I'm going to recommend three, some, I'm going to recommend three books. All right. Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. It's a thoroughly gospel, biblical uh, work that processes through the journey of, of reconciliation. So I, just say it again so I can hear it. Be the Bridge. Uh, Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. All right. It's a book that I highly, highly recommend. Uh, second book would be Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. He works through American history, but not just American history, church history as well. Um, in the American experience. And he talks about how racism has been propagated through the years. He's a African-American believer, uh, really, really a sharp guy. Uh, love, love, love that book. And then my third work would be One Blood by Dr. John Perkins. I think anything that John Perkins writes is gold. I love that man. Uh, recommend that book as well. So I think reading, educating, getting proximate, listening to uh, African-American voices on this topic will help to shape your mind around, around this most important topic. Um, so yeah, I think that would be my one, my, my one main recommendation is to immerse yourself in reading on this topic, but not just any reading, reading by African-American authors. Yeah. I think that matters. Yeah, that's good. What's yours? So I... I like reading and, and informing, and I would amen everything Josh, Josh just said. But something I've mentioned to him before is just I am an experiential learner, and an ex having an experience always, I feel like, takes me a few steps further sometimes even than, than what I read. And I think you should read those resources. But I think if you're looking for an experience that will move you many steps ahead in this journey, mm -hmm. if you are a majority culture person, and you've never had the experience of attending a church or an event or being in a situation in which you are the, the minority person, put yourself in that situation and you will learn so much. Yeah. Go to a church where you are the only white face in the church. 
go, go, go to an event, <laughs> some uh, event where you are in the minority and the culture is not, and not, not a, a foreign context, you know, because a lot of times we can kind of separate that out a little bit, but even that is a good learning experience. Go, go to another place in America where things are not suited to your cultural preference and just see what that feels like. That's great. So that's two, and I'm going to add one more to it for all of us, and this was helpful to me. All of us have African-Americans in our sphere right now that we know. They're, they're, they're our friends, they're our coworkers, and all of us know probably at least one of them or more are probably experiencing some of this moment in, in, in a very real, real way. Talk to them. Just talk to them. Tell me how you feel. Help me understand how you, you know, Confucius said, seek to understand, you know, before being understood. Some wise words. Seek to understand before being understood. To find somebody, that was so helpful to me, to get in front of somebody and say, hey, tell me how you feel. Help me to understand. And therefore, as I have done that, when I saw what happened to George Floyd, my heart broke because my heart went to those same people that I talked to because I thought about them. I was able in my own heart to make the connection between what happened to George Floyd and my brother and my sisters, who I, I shared and talked to, of what they were feeling. It connected the dots for me. Hmm. So those are three, I think, like super practical things. You know, reading, educating yourself specifically from African-American authors to get their perspective is so huge. It's so important. Don't read what white guys say about what happened. That's what we got in school. Read it from their perspective. Put yourself in an environment where you're the you're the only white guy around and feel what that feels like and then pick somebody in your sphere right now some african-americans that that you know and love but you may have never had this conversation with them it's never came up take them up for coffee just say talk to me help me to help me to understand this is so good man oh we are out of time man i hope this has been like helpful and we love these guys and but we do have an event coming up that we don't want to we don't want to pass up inviting everyone out to really quickly as we wrap up. Um, yeah. I think we have maybe a lower third. I hope kind of graphic we can throw up. If we, if we don't, we can make that available. I'm in but, this uh, camera here? Yeah, right okay. there. All right. Well, I want to I give a call to everyone. It's a tense moment, an inflection point, as Hazen said earlier, uh, within the church, within America, where we cannot escape the conversation of race. We can't ex escape that we have a, a larger problem then we're gonna deal with in a conversation, then we're gonna deal with with legislation. We have a problem in this moment. And we as a church should be leading on this most critical issue because we have the right to, to proper theology concerning the Imago Dei and the dignification of all people.